bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 11, 2012. I'm in D.C. this week at the New Market Tax Credit Coalition Winter Meetings. I begin this week's podcast with an update on the fiscal cliff negotiations in Washington, D.C. I also have information on a recently released CBO report, a new deficit reduction plan, as well as news about two upcoming congressional hearings. In our low income housing tax credit segment, I'll review Novogratz's analysis of the recently released 2013 rent and income limits. I'll also discuss the findings of a report released by the Government Accountability Office regarding the changes to the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program that were made under the Housing and Economic Recovery Act, or HERA, back in 2008. In our renewable energy discussion, I'll talk about a private letter ruling released last week that revokes, that's right, it revokes a previous private letter ruling related to the purchase price allocation on wind transactions. I'll also describe new rules announced by the Interior Department that are expected to streamline the leasing approval process on Indian land, spurring increased development, including development of renewable energy projects. In this week's historic tax credit section, I have a state-level update from New York, where a bill was sent to the governor's office last week that, if signed, could boost the state's historic tax credit cap. And finally, in our new market tax credit discussion, I'll review the latest QEI issuance report and share news about a bill passed by the Ohio Senate that would increase the state's new market tax credit cap from $10 million to $50 million. If you're ready, let's get started. Now, as we speak about negotiations continuing in January, I wanted to share with you information about one of the deficit reduction plans that gets a lot of attention. We've reported on it in previous podcasts, and that's the Domenici Rivlin Plan. Well, the Domenici Rivlin Plan has a new version. Under the new version, there are some revenue area changes. The new version would implement an income tax rebate. That rebate would cost about $120 billion, and in some ways is a proxy for the payroll tax relief that would not get extended. The update would also tax carried interest as ordinary income, raising $20 billion, and it would phase out certain deductions for high-income taxpayers. The phase-out would be permanent and would raise $163 billion. Now, their revised plan includes a provision to avoid going off the fiscal cliff. The plan includes extending expiring tax cuts, provides AMT relief, and the dock fix. Sequestration cuts would also be further delayed. Now the reason why I mention this is that their plan has a legislative backstop. This legislative backstop 
includes closing the deficit in part by raising new revenues by limiting tax expenditures, a limitation that would be executed by OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, without the ability to choose which tax expenditures are limited. So we'll be watching closely and listening closely to see to what extent this type of legislative backstop gains traction as Congress works on avoiding the fiscal cliff. Also, it's worth noting last week that the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, published a report on the taxation of pass-through businesses. This report will help guide at least House Ways and Means Republicans on the design of some type of corporate-level tax on pass-throughs if they were to support such a concept. In the report, the CBO estimated that, and I quote, if the C corporation tax rules had applied to S corporations and LLCs, in that year, and if there had been no behavioral responses to that difference in tax treatment, total federal revenues would have been about $76 billion higher. What does that mean? It means if pass-through entities had paid a C-corp level tax and then distributed the remaining profits and been taxed at the individual level, then the federal government would have raised $76 billion more dollars. And that's per year. Obviously, over a 10-year scoring window, that's a lot of money. And you can see how many would look at that in the context of tax reform as a revenue source to offset the elimination of other tax provisions or reduce the need to reduce other tax provisions in order to lower the rate. Now, in doing this analysis, the CBO, as I noted, did assume that whatever profits weren't used to pay taxes were distributed. The CBO also created an alternative estimate based on what it called the extreme assumption about the distribution of profits. And that extreme assumption included that businesses retained all earnings of profits and didn't pay the extra profit and dividends. That rule would still raise $61 billion, or I should say that provision would still raise $61 billion. And that's a year, so over a 10-year period, your $610 billion before you take into account annual inflation and changes in income based upon CPI growth. So keep that in mind, the taxation to pass through entities and the revenue possibilities there as Congress addresses tax reform. Bearing in mind that Republicans ideally would like to avoid the double taxation of corporate profits, but that's likely not going to be the end result, and will likely be some effort to reduce the marginal tax rate on corporate profits, and then we'll see how dividends are taxed at the individual level. Now, on the congressional hearings front, a Senate Finance Subcommittee is going to conduct a hearing Wednesday, December 12th, on tax reform and energy policy. The hearing is titled Tax Reform and Federal Energy Policy, Incentives to Promote Energy Efficiency and it's being held by the Subcommittee on Energy, Natural Resources, and Infrastructure. 
retiring Senator Jeff Bingaman, Democrat from New Mexico, is the chairman, and Senator John Cornyn is the ranking Republican. Testifying at the hearing will be representatives from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, Johnson Controls, and Efficiency First San Francisco. And then, the next day, on Thursday, December 13th, there's going to be a Volcker Rule Oversight Hearing. The hearing is being held by the House Financial Services Committee, and it's entitled, Examining the Impact of the Volcker Rule on Markets, Businesses, Investors, and Job Creation, Part 2. In low-income housing tax credit news, last week, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development released its fiscal year 2013 income limits. HUD released two sets of income limits. The Section 8 income limits, which it uses to determine income eligibility for HUD's assisted housing programs, including public housing, Section 8, Section 202, and Section 811. HUD also released the Multifamily Tax Subsidy Projects Income Limits, MTSPs, which it uses to determine the qualification levels and to set maximum rental rates for long-missing tax credit and taxes and bond projects. HUD releases the income limits annually, and they're based on the five-year American Community Survey data. The fiscal year 2013 written income limits are based on ACS American Community Survey data for 2006 through 2010. Novograd and Company has analyzed the data, and earlier today, my colleagues Jim Kroger and Thomas Dagg presented a free webinar on the 2013 income limits. We also have a rent and income limit calculator. It's available on the Affordable Housing Resource Center. Now, we're currently working on updating the rent and income limit calculator with the fiscal 2013 income limits, and hopefully, by the time you're listening to this podcast, it has been updated. I will send a tweet as well as an alert email when the calculator is updated, so keep an eye out for that news. And if you have questions about how the 2013 limits might affect your property, I would encourage you to contact your nearest Novograd & Company office. I'd also encourage you to contact my colleague, Jim Kroger, about your property. You can reach Jim at 415-356-8000. There's also a new service that we've added to the Written Income Limit Calculator that allows you to input in a particular property and store that property-level information for future access. It'll be a huge time savings as you go in and calculate your rent and income limits for a particular property. Now let's turn to a Government Accountability Office study. Last week, the Government Accountability Office released a report on the Housing Need and Recovery Act of 2008 and its changes to the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. As listeners may recall, HERA made more than 20 changes to the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. These changes included increasing the per capita credit allocations available to states, setting a temporary floor on the 9% tax credit rate, something that we've been working on getting extended, and giving housing finance agencies more discretion in increasing project award sizes, namely through increasing the deemed eligible basis, the 30% provision. The recent report was mandated by a provision in the law that required GAO to study these changes, including the distribution of credit allocations both before and after HERA. 
GAO's 46-page follow-up report on the HERA changes discusses a number of items, including how the IRS and selected housing finance agencies implemented these changes, what HUD's data show about the number and characteristics of projects completed from 2006 to 2010, and stakeholder views on how the HERA changes affected low-income housing tax credit developments. The report found that as of October, the IRS and Treasury were still working on implementation issues. For example, HERA waived the rule that prohibited existing buildings that had been held less than 10 years from being eligible for acquisition tax credits. The waiver, though, applies to any building that was substantially assisted, financed, or operated under certain federal or state programs. However, there's a lack of a definition for the term substantially. And the lack of a definition for the term substantially delayed acquisition projects and resulted in the substitution of other projects, such as new construction for acquisition projects. GAO's report mentions that the Long Island Tax Credit Working Group, sponsored by Novograd and Company, was the organization that requested Treasury's guidance on the issue in 2009 and in 2010. The GAO also found that the Long Island Tax Credit Program stakeholders were unable to determine the broad effects of HERA, but certain provisions enhance the financial viability of individual projects. Some state officials said that the ability to award more credits per project particularly benefited rural developments, which are generally more difficult to finance. During its study of HUD's Long Island Tax Credit database, GAO found incomplete information and said that the data provide limited insight into program trends. The report noted that HUD has been making efforts to improve its data collection methods, this despite resource constraints. For instance, a HUD official noted that a HERA requirement for the agency to collect tenant-level data has made data collection more challenging because HUD must divide its available resources between tenant and project-level data collection. GAO advised HUD to evaluate and implement additional steps to improve its loan funding tax credit database, a recommendation that HUD agreed with. You can find a copy of the report titled Agencies Implemented Changes Enacted in 2008, but, collect, but Project Collection Could Be Improved. Kind of a long title. Anyways, this GAO report is available online at www.taxcredithousing.com. In renewable energy tax credit news, in an unusual turn of events, Last week, the IRS issued Private Letter Ruling 2012-49013. Now that isn't that unusual. The unusual part is that revenue ruling revokes a previous revenue ruling, PLR 2012-14007. Now, the IRS, in the previous ruling, had concluded that where the taxpayer in question acquired wind energy facilities subject to facility-specific power purchase agreements, or PPAs, that no portion of its purchase price should be allocated to the purchase price agreements. And the purchase price of such wind energy facilities that's attributable to such PPAs should be taken into account in determining adjusted basis of the wind energy facilities. However, since issuing this letter ruling, the IRS says it's determined that that prior ruling is not in accord with the current views of the IRS. As such, the new PLR, 
2012-49013, says, and I quote, After reconsideration, we have concluded that the portion of the purchase price paid by taxpayer that is attributable to the PPAs is to be allocated to the PPAs and not to the wind energy facilities, close quote. Renewable energy experts and insiders may not be surprised by the revocation of the first PLR because the IRS policy in this regard has been somewhat unclear. Now, if you have questions about this point, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in Novogratz San Francisco office or contact Tony Grapponi in Novogratz Boston office. Copies of both rulings can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Now let's turn to some new regulations for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The Secretary of the Interior and the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs announced new regulations for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, PIA. New regulations regarding the approval of surface leases on tribal lands, of which the federal government controls 56 million acres. The new rules are expected to streamline the leasing approval process on Indian land spurring increased development, including development of renewable energy projects. Previous BIA regulations established in 1961, the year of my birth, lacked a defined procedure or deadlines for application review, so the new rules are meant to clarify and streamline the process. Some of the new provisions include establishing separate processes for renewable energy, residential and business projects, instead of the previous one-size-fits-all approach, providing specific steps and deadlines for BAI review of project applications, limiting grounds on which BIA may disapprove lease documents, and requiring BIA to defer to tribal decisions on rental rates. The updated rules mark a step towards supporting self-determination for Indian nations and shifting more power from the BIA to the tribes. The final rule can be found at www.doi.gov. In historic tax credit news, after several months' delay, a proposal to increase New York State tax credits for private sector-driven historic preservation projects has moved from the legislative chamber to the desk of Governor Andrew Cuomo. A bill approved this summer by the New York State Assembly and New York State Senate would raise the historic tax credit limit from $5 million to $12 million. Governor Cuomo's signature is needed to raise the cap, and he has 10 days to sign or reject the bill. The bill was delivered on December 5th, so action is needed by December 15th. Supporters say the bill would encourage development of larger historic rehabilitation projects, especially in cities such as Buffalo. I'll provide an update in next week's podcast. So, stay tuned. In new market tax credit news, last week, the CDFI Fund released the monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report, QEI Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that's been issued to investors and the amount remaining to be issued to investors. In November, for the month, Approximately $129 million of QEIs were finalized. The amount still available at New Market Tax Allocation Authority has dropped 
to $2.6 billion as of December 3rd. While technically available in the sense that it isn't formally committed, much of that amount is already unofficially committed or what we often refer to as soft-circled. This dwindling amount of available new market tax rate authority underscores the need for a program extension. Now, if you need help finding an allocation or help closing a transaction, I do encourage you to contact one of my partners. Annette Stevens said could be contacted in our Cleveland, Ohio office, Owen Gray in our San Francisco office, and then also feel free to contact an Evergreen partner in the office near you. Now let's turn to the state of Ohio. Last week, lawmakers in Ohio considered a bill to boost the cap for the state new market tax credit. State Senators Bill Beagle and Charlita Tavares sponsored Senate Bill 327, that back in April. That measure would increase the annual limit on the Ohio new market tax credit that may be awarded, and it goes to job creators, from $10 million to $50 million. On Wednesday, the Ohio Senate passed this bill, Senate Bill 327, by a 31 to 2 vote. The Dayton Business Journal reports that Senator Beagle said Senate Bill 327 would allow for rapid deployment of more than $437 million of investment in Ohio's poorest communities. The journal quotes Beagle as saying, Ohio's new market tax credit program has potential to create significant economic impact and job creation in precisely the areas of the state that need it the most. This legislation now goes to the Ohio House of Representatives. You can find a copy of the measure online at www.newmarketscredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. In between now and next week, please follow me on Twitter, look for my tweets, and keep track of any blog postings. If there's digital information you want me to cover, shoot me an email, michael.novogradic at novaco.com or to cpas at novaco.com. This is Michael Novogradic, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratic Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.